So welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, uh, where we bring the best of the best to help you scale your business from 1 million to 100 million uh, in annual recurring revenue. So uh, hope you had an amazing summer and it's great to get back on, on the show with uh, an amazing guest that has been with us uh, in the past. His name is Rav Daliwo, the venture partner at Crane. Rav, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. It's uh, really great to be back on the show. <laughs> Uh, likewise, it's it's really a pleasure. And for the ones uh, who have not listened to to the previous episodes in number one hundred and seventy three, to help you out uh, to get back to to listen to to Raf. Um, he has been leading CS at Slack, Zendesk, Yammer. Has been also at Salesforce, and has been. Uh, the, um, the first London employee of, of Slack. So a uh, huge experience uh, with, with customer success and some of the topics that you like the most to talk about are very related to this, but in a, in a very holistic perspective mm-hmm. of business. And, and nowadays also uh, as an angel investor and in the, in the venture capital uh, world. So Raf, did I forget anything that you'd like to add just no, to no, not, reintroduce not yourself into the show? Yeah, <laughs> super conferences. So yeah, I mean, just for everyone listening, as, uh, as you mentioned, Mike, I often jokingly describe myself as a recovering software executive. So uh, I spent about 20 plus years in various enterprise software businesses. And the last 12 years, as you mentioned, those companies, there, sort of hyper growth startups that either got acquired or went public. And one of the, I guess, fortunate side effects of being very early in some companies that have grown is that you end up just doing a lot more than your core competency. So my core competency is obviously customers and customer success, but being first boots on the ground, you're doing sales, you're doing a bit of marketing, you're doing PR, you're helping to hire, you know, all different kinds of roles. So, um, and you mentioned the word holistic and and hopefully, um your listeners will get come away with the idea that what we're talking about is not some of these things in isolation. We're trying to look at them holistically as the things you need to do in order to scale your business to that 1 million and beyond. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And you've been uh, writing amazing articles. The One of the last articles that you've put it together for uh, all the founders and executives out there is called the missing piece of software sales. Uh, so for people that want to get into that article, just go to have Dalivo uh, on LinkedIn and you'll be able, I'm sure, to, to find the, the yeah, article. Or Medium as well. On Medium yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I think this is a very common problem and I will let you introduce a little bit what was the purpose when you uh, had this in mind to, to start writing this article. But I think that's the traditional or old school skills uh, sales um, motion uh, is outdated, and we need to bring a new way of um, of making software sales uh, work. And some of that is related to that before um, we had a, a kind of a on off uh, moment of of, of uh, buying or acquiring a. Uh, software uh, and nowadays it's kind of a continuous sales software yeah. approach that we we need to keep proving value and feeling value if we are the customer out of the solution that we have uh, bought so it's not something that we have 
bought a very um, legacy-oriented solution, and, uh, and and nowadays, after three or five years, I'm considering if we should go away to another solution, uh, and then in in five years, I will think about it uh, again. But during the next five years, I will not take uh, too much attention to that. Um, so, what was what was the purpose and the why behind this this new article? Um, great question, there, Mike. So. As an investor now, I spend a lot of time talking to companies, talking to startups that are scaling or, or looking to scale and, and working with portfolio companies, helping them to scale. And so one of the things that has sort of become very apparent to me over the last few years is that the way that we build sort of contemporary SaaS companies, uh, from a commercial perspective, from a sales marketing perspective, hasn't really changed that much over the last 25, 30 years. However, the way that we build software, the way we distribute it, the way we license it is completely different. So I started to then look at that idea and go, well, actually that helps me to contextualize some of the many challenges I faced as a software executive and working on the CS front, because what we've essentially done is taken everything in the old world when a customer or a prospect would buy on-premises software, they would be perpetually licensed. They would own the license forever. And they would make a capital expenditure, right? And we've taken everything that we did then and we've moved all of it into the contemporary SaaS startup world. And we're trying to get companies to scale when the customer is now buying cloud-based software, not on-premises. They're not making a capital expenditure. They're making an operating expenditure. Exactly. And they're not perpetually licensed. They rent the license from us every month or, or, or for the year. So that really got me thinking about what some of the challenges are for, for contemporary startups and scaling. It's like, well, actually, everybody is telling you to build a commercial organization, all the literature, all the advisors, all the other investors, they're telling you to build your commercial organization based on how we did that 25 years ago or 30 years ago. Now, 25, 30 years ago, it made absolute sense to focus on contract signature because the customer was perpetually licensed and had the license forever. They would have to sink a lot of capital in terms of just getting the software up and running. You know, they had to mm -hmm. buy data center space and servers and racks and backup solutions and you know, all sorts of things that they had to spend in order to just simply use your software. So the switching cost for them was pretty high. You know, they would have to, it'd be pretty serious after spending that much money capital for someone to say, this doesn't work, we made a mistake, let's, let's look it. at something else. Switching cost in SaaS is, you know, it's really low. It's really low, it's pretty low friction, especially now with the sort of API economy, right? You know, with, it's much easier for software to interact, it's much easier to extract data, et cetera. So mm -hmm. what I noticed was that we still kind of organize sales the same way that we did before, and we still kind of pretty much incentivize and pay our sales organizations the same way. We say, we're really going to incentivize your contract signature. And part of the thrust behind writing the article was I wanted to sort of help founders to understand that this is just a legacy thing. This is just because this is always how we've done it. And really that legacy or what I call the, in the article, the orthodox sales approach yeah. is because it's only concerned with two things, inbound and outbound sales. Someone comes to us or we go to someone. And really in a SaaS model, we have to do inbound and we have to do outbound. We can't build a company, but we have actually a third type of sales that we need to think about. And 
That's what in the article I called continuous acts. And this is this idea that contract signature doesn't represent the end of the sale. It's actually the start of an entire cycle of selling because we need to make sure first and foremost that the customer has seen very quick value from the software that they initially purchased because otherwise we can't come back to them and ask them to do more business with us. So I'll pause there for a moment, but that was kind of a very um, hopefully reasonably uh, high, uh, high overview of kind of the thinking behind the article and why I kind of position it is that there is this missing piece of sales. Absolutely. That, that's, that's a great topic. And I've, I see this kind of mindset uh, being a bottleneck on, on revenue growth, uh, definitely, mm. and especially on, on creating the different revenue machines for each stage um, of growth, yeah. right? And I think that bottleneck, it's a, it's a key point, um, Mike, because unless you become a multi-product company very quickly, yeah. as you're scaling 1 million plus, uh, or unless you create a, or, or, or unless you have an inexhaustible addressable market, eventually you will tap out who you can sell to, yeah. right? Either because competitors will move in, and that's often the case, and you will have to, you'll find it harder and harder to differentiate, uh, or you have to have more products or services to sell them. So the idea behind trying to encourage founders to have a continuous sales motion as well as an inbound and outbound one was what you're then doing is you're laying down a foundation of sustainable revenue growth. So what you're saying, what mm -hmm. you, it's much easier to scale from a million upwards if you have really low churn and you're growing revenue from your existing customer base. In my experience, if you are scaling really fast on the sales marketing front and the product front, but you've got a lot of churn, it's almost impossible to fix because the business is moving too quickly. So <laughs> now that may that scenario may work for three, four, five years, but eventually you're gonna have to you're gonna have to sell so much new licenses and revenue to make up for the loss, you won't be able to keep up. And then you're fundamentally the writings on the wall at that point. Absolutely. And even when you become a multi-product uh, company, you the, the easiest way to start uh, distributing new products and services will be with your existing customers. E so exactly, yeah. If and there is not a, I always no. give, give to people who say, well, you know, I'm kind of happy with the way we're doing sales and churn, we can manage churn, we'll throw a lot of resource at it. I always ask them the same question is like, how much new revenue at Salesforce do you think comes from the existing customer base? It's a multi-product company, right? And everyone kind of sort of says, ah, oh, 30%, 40%, blah, blah, blah. And I think from the uh, annual financial statement a couple of years ago, it was something like 78% or 73%, something okay. crazy, right? And I was like, that is why it is a bellwether of the industry. They sell to the people they've already sold to, right? And I think that is the true way to build a, a very sustainable, fast-growing business. We, we always cover here three critical ingredients to scale. Uh, yeah. As we have been moving through it with you already in past episodes, let's, yeah. let's be flexible today and, and go into the points that you want. Sure. 
to add more value to, to the audience and, and to our community. Uh, so those ingredients are radical focus, uh, number two, world-class leadership, and number three, uh, we have kind of rebranded or moved it from the culture of execution to an execution uh, machine because yeah. culture Within is ritual, also yeah. mm. include perfect. Uh, yeah. you have, we have that perfectly well summarized, I know, <laughs> in, in advance. Mm. But, um, but but let's start with, with the first one, right? So... Um, how, how this approach can help us to assure that we remain focused. I think that we have already kind of covered it. Mm. What are the main points that you'd like to highlight in terms of a radical focus perspective? Yeah, so I think if we want to scale a business, I think one of the things that you have to have radical focus on a number of things, but I think one of the key ones is on net revenue retention. So from a scaling perspective, this is often something that's reported on almost like a byproduct. It's in the board deck. But mm -hmm. what I was suggesting in the article is when I say building a continuous sales motion, what we're really saying is typically it takes two people to sell. It takes a commercial person, an AE, normally supported by a product technical person, an SE. What I'm suggesting is you simply mirror that with your existing customers, whereby your customer success person is kind of mirrored of the SE and that you have also some commercial owner of the existing customer, whether that's the original seller or an account manager, but someone whose job is commercially to drive growth right. in the existing customer base working with their CS counterpart. But in order to make all of that work, the business has to really be radically focused as one of its key metrics on that net revenue retention. How much revenue are we retaining from our customer base and how much is the customer base growing? And and this speaks to, you know, the other areas you, you like to uh, delve into about world-class leadership and execution is if you don't have radical focus on NRR, if, if in theory no particular role or roles own that number, then That's it's going to be very, very hard to scale the business. It really, really is. Absolutely. That's, that's really a... A great point, and I see some resistance even sometimes on introducing that metric in the um, in the company OKRs, which I think it's it's critical because then if it yeah. is in the company OKRs, you are able to have someone accountable for that number because that's how it works Correct. and to yeah. define targets and and then exactly yeah and it's um there's always a tussle I think scaling a business between leading and lagging indicators, right? So, yep. you know, your leading ones are ACV. We've got to add new customers, add new revenue, right? And mm -hmm. your lagging ones are, are kind of things like NRR, right? Because that's over a, a probably a longer period, right. a quarter or a year. But as my grandfather was very fond of saying, you should fix the roof when it isn't raining, <laughs> right? So if you, have, if you have a radical focus on net revenue retention as a business from day one, I not only want to build a great product, I not only want to learn how to sell this product repeatedly, but I want to be able to drive more business from my existing customers. And that is part of my focus from day one. You're really on a very, very good trajectory to building a very big, successful business that you can scale uh, quickly. Absolutely. Yeah. And also a point that I'd like to make here uh, is it's really doubling down on on the niches of your current customers that might be more strategic uh, in in the midterm, yeah. I'm saying if you if you are really seeing a, a huge growth in in the American market, for instance, 
or in a specific region of the American market in a specific industry with a specific size of company, it would be good also to take that NRR or that specific segment and get obsessed about growing mm. that uh, NRR. That's quite help you with revenue Correct. acquisition it on that niche. It might help you orient your roadmap, for example, in a slightly different direction, which means you could sell more. Yeah, exactly. I think it, it's a... Uh, sort and of this idea of looking at NRR by cohort, right, by region or industry or exactly. something. Yeah, I think that that will help you to figure out things like, you know, do you have the right product market fit, for example, or do you yep. have the right skill set? So yeah, I agree 100%. Because maybe some of your some of your existing customers might not be so strategic, so you don't want to invest too much. Uh, you, you want kind of to protect those accounts but you don't want to keep increasing uh, the level of relationship and the level yeah. uh, of trust the cost of their acquisition yeah exactly yeah yeah so again and i think this is this is part of if nrr is part of your thinking then what you'll be able to do is make decisions like that much more cogently absolutely we are unlikely to drive new revenue out of this customer until we have these additional features, or actually we've sold to everybody in that company. So our focus there is maintain, uh, maybe try and drive some advocacy from that customer, reference case study that will help us drive top of funnel. Mm -hmm. But it, our job is to maintain, but where you, and I'm sure you, from all the entrepreneurs you speak to, Mike, you know, these days, even large corporations do not buy enterprise-wide. They will start small and grow in. Exactly. You know, they'll start in one part of the business, one region, one department, and they'll see, and then they'll look to expand. Gone are the days where someone would buy for 155,000 employees <laughs> in one go. You know, there's a, a few examples where that does happen, but very few. So, you know, again, I think that's why it, it is super important to have that NRR focus because almost everybody grows into the initial contract. Absolutely. It's like compounding interest, basically. That's the way I look at it, right? It's just, it's, it's almost the equivalent of compounding interest. Absolutely. You have already approached that, but from a, a world-class leadership and culture perspective, yeah. uh, one of the issues with, with this kind of metrics is that they are, um, they are the result or the product of, um, of the intervention of different people uh, in mm. the team. And it's quite difficult sometimes to align the interests of those teams to really work together, mm -hmm. uh, not only from the kind of the, the the sentimental or emotional perspective that they want to work together because they want to be successful as a team, but also from a compensation perspective and alignment perspective, uh, it also makes sense financially. So yeah. uh, how do you align uh, a team uh, to, to, make, to make it work? Yeah, this is a really great question, Mike, because I would say 80% of my conversations in a given week boil down to some kind of question around what's the best way to align to get this done? And I, I think you described it beautifully there. Certain outcomes require an intervention of multiple people. If we go back to the orthodox sales approach I was talking about, the on-premises approach, yeah. that's designed like a production line. And I think we may have spoken about this in our last conversation you know, startups tend to be, especially go-to-market teams, tend to be organized like a production line. We have SDR, BDR, AE, SE, and everybody's got a little slice of this production line. And so what that tends to do is we tend to start incentivizing people just for their little slice. 
And that then reinforces this production line, right? So I think from a world-class leadership team culture, what you ultimately really want to be doing, and I'll take the example of sales and CS leaders, for example, you want to be hiring people who philosophically believe that their job starts at the contract signature, not ends at the contract signature, right? And I think that can be easier said than done because of just, you know, the orthodox way we sell has been around for a long time. But, you know, I've been fortunate enough to, um, and one leader springs particularly to mind, to, you know, work with some world-class sales leaders who are like, actually, it's not the goal of just selling once. I want to come back and keep selling to this customer. So I need to have this really strong alignment with sales, with CS, with SE, all these part, all these other people that will affect my ability to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, to make sure we are we're we creating the conditions for not just one set of revenue from this customer, but from multiple, right? So I think it really, from a, a team culture and world-class leadership, it really is that philosophically we believe that our job begins at contract signature and we're going to work together uh, to make that real. And I, I think that's not just a leadership trait. I think individual salespeople, individual success people need to think that way too. They need to think about mm-hmm. our job here is not, you know, our job is not just to sell once and try to keep them. Our job is to sell once, try to keep them and try to do more with them. Right. So how do we work together to do that? And and that's curious because sometimes when the incentives are not aligned, so maybe the CSM uh, might not have the um, the AE excited uh, to work on that specific account because they have yeah. another uh, priorities mm. of other accounts that might might make them their their bonus much better uh, and their results much better than to focus on on those kind of customers. So I think this is sometimes shows that the model is not working, right? Yeah, and I think it speaks to the third thing you mentioned there, Mike, which is this either culture of execution and effectively alignment, right? So yeah. my experience is founders and leaders go kind of crazy trying to think about the org structure alignment. And I actually try to encourage them to think about the incentive alignment, which you can do <laughs> separate of the org structure alignment, Love which it. is, you know, if you want to get different roles to work with each other because they need to bring their different skills in order to make something happen like NRR or new ACV. Um, Well, first of all, make sure they're working on a common book of business, right? So if sales is organized by geography, make sure CS is organized by geography or professional services is. If sales is organized by industry vertical, make sure that all the functions that need to work with it to drive new revenue. And when I say sales, that could be AEs or account managers, because it may be people who own the customer after the first sale. So I think that's really important because then you can create a culture of, well, hey, we're we're CEOs of our territory here, our book of business. This is our (laughs) book to run and manage. And on your question of prioritization, you can then have AM and CSM argue about prioritization. I think this is important. I think this is important and come to a conclusion as to where they're going to focus their time. Sometimes the AM will win, sometimes the CSM will win, right? But they're taking ownership over a common book because they're aligned on it. And I think then going back to this idea of abstracting away from the org structure and looking at the incentive structure, give Mm -hmm. them some targets that are in common, right? And they don't have to be the same percentages. The example I always give is if you have a seller 
and they have, you know, obviously a compensation plan, why don't you make 5% of their comp based around the customer being fully deployed in 90 days, right? Mm -hmm. Because then they have an incentive to get that full 100% compensation to set their CS or professional services person up for success. Well, let me get you introduced to the customer and let's get started on this because I want to get my 5%, you know, within the first 90 days. Similarly, why don't you make 5% of the CS or professional services person's comp based on helping the salesperson close the deal, right? Then you've got, so so then what you're doing is you're aligning them on the key thing you want them to focus on. I want 95% of my compensation for a salesperson to be focused on new business, ACV. And I want 95% of my success person or professional services person's comp on fast time to value, getting them deployed in 30, 60, 90 days. Well, why can't I give them 5% that overlaps? Because then they've got an incentive to work with each other. And some people think that's super controversial. And I'm like, to me, it just makes complete logical sense. And by the way, if people complain about it, that's normally because it's the right thing to do in my experience. (laughs) I haven't haven't yet to meet a happy salesperson or a happy CS person. They're always complaining about something. (laughs) I feel relieved after that comments. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what I mean? It's like my territory is too big. It's not small enough, blah, blah, blah. I got too many accounts. You know, there's always some tension there, which is fine. That's, you know, as long as it's healthy tension. But what I'm really talking about, all joking aside is, making sure that they've got their own business that they're running together and that they've got some targets that incentivize them to have to work with each other. You know, I think that's really, otherwise you go back to that production line, right? I did my piece. I was optimized for my piece. I handed it over to someone else. And beyond that, once I handed it over, I stopped caring about it. Right. Yeah. And like that, that would be okay if the business never cared about NRR or, or selling more to that customer. Yeah. There is definitely a cultural phenomenon I see with founders and startups where they go, you know, they kind of think renewals or uplift or, you know, growth of customers happens by magic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, exactly. they're often so far away from the huge amount of work that goes into not just keeping the customer, but growing the customer. And that's normally because as the business scales, their view becomes a spreadsheet or a dashboard. Um, we talk about founder-led sales a lot, right? You know, founders should learn yeah. how to sell. There needs to be founder-led success. They need to know how to deploy, nurture, and grow because they need to understand just how much work's involved. You know, yeah. I mean, I genuinely meet a lot of founders who think, oh, the product just sells itself, right? You know, and it'll just continue to sell itself. And I'm like, unfortunately, that's not true. <laughs> that's why usually in, in the weeklies that I set up with leadership uh, teams, I usually introduce one of the the points of the agenda it's about the um, customer stories so mm. everyone is in, uh, encouraged to share anything that worked well not so well or something that we that we learned in the previous week working with customers yeah uh, and if we can be specific about sharing really the story the name of the customer mm. uh, who is the customer what was the challenge that we faced what have we learned or even what is the problem that we are trying to uh, solve because we didn't find yet a solution. I think this this is quite, quite important to assure that we keep being yeah. customer-centric, right? And it's it's not just customer-centric, it's just continuously learning, right? It's continuously yeah. learning. No business is static, you know, you're, exactly. you're scaling, you're changing your product, your customers are changing. So you have to, you know, I, 
see like a lot of later stage businesses where the reason that they're having a problem is they decided on a certain way of working and then they never looked at it again. They never altered anything that they were doing despite the fact that they'd suddenly moved into a different market segment or a different region or et cetera, right? So, you know, um, that's, the, that's the great thing about having customers is they will always teach you something new. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's great. I think that we kind of covered almost um, the checklist that is present at, at the end of your uh, Medium article, um, yeah. the missing piece of software sales. Uh, I would quickly just go through those questions because I think that yeah. it's, it's really uh, interesting and I will uh, let you add any uh, final comment that you'd like to, to add to it. But some of your questions are who has commercial ownership of a customer after the initial sale is concluded. Second, if you have mirrored the commercial and product owners, are they both suitably incentivized to make driving new revenue from existing customers worth their while? Uh, third, if you have successfully mirrored both owner roles and incentivized them correctly, are they aligned on a common book uh, of, of business? Number four, in deal reviews, are you mandating before a deal can be closed at one that there is a plan in place to set customers up for long-term uh, product success and future new revenue? And finally, who owns the net revenue retention number? I think that that's a great summary of um, what we discussed today yeah, and very you. good questions to, to ask. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the first one there is the key one. Again, I just mentioned it sort of semi-jokingly, a lot of founders often think renewals and growth just happens automatically. And in those situations, they don't actually have anyone who's responsible for driving new revenue from the existing customer base. And I think that's the key question I, I talk to founders about a lot. Who has commercial ownership after you've sold the first time? And normally there's a lot of silence when I ask that <laughs> question. Um, and we talked about this idea of mirroring. You mentioned it there. Mirroring is really... You have typically two sets of skills to sell, commercial skill, AE, te technical product skill, SE. How have you mirrored those with your after the initial sale? So do you have a commercial owner, AE or AM? And do you have a technical product owner, customer success person? And it's just about making sure you're continuing that same set of skills, maybe in different people, with the existing customer base, because the selling effort never really ends. The selling effort is a, is a continuous one. Absolutely. So always um, amazing. I would like also to highlight, uh, just to wrap up, uh, one of the quotes of, of your article that I, feel I really enjoyed is, in a continuous sales motion, customers need to be continuously sold on the value of their initial software purchase and to see its value realized in the shortest amount of time with the least amount of effort on their part. So it's it seems super easy, but there is a lot of work to make this happen. Yeah. And yeah. this is and really, really important. It's really important. And I think going back to the start of our conversation, Mike, about squeezing everything in the old world into the new world, in the old world, it was not uncommon for a big software purchase to take a year, two years to be deployed. And because of the sunk cost, the customer had to keep going. They couldn't, they couldn't, they had to, they had to keep going. So we were less concerned about time to value because we would sell a big contract, we would fly professional services or a partner in, and they would work for seven, eight, nine months or a year, and then the customer could use the software. We changed the distribution model now, right? It's SaaS. There's typically not much to deploy, if anything, maybe stuff to configure. So we've got to be able to do that quickly. And the customer has a busy day job. 
Uh, and this is the other challenge I sort of see with startups is you live and breathe your product, but your customer does not. Your customer is an insurance company or a bank or, you know, they've got other stuff that they need to be doing. Right. So how can you make this as quick and as least effort for them as possible? And that is an area I think a lot of founders would do well to understand themselves firsthand. Just how much effort does it take to, to drive that fast time to value? Raf, again, uh, amazing stuff. Is, is there anything that you'd like to highlight to close our show today? Uh, just to reiterate, you know, if, um, I'll, you know, if anyone wants to read the article, it's up on Medium. It's called uh, Missing Piece of Software Sales. Uh, I'm shortly uh, going to publish a, a, my latest article, which is actually a framework for hiring customer people. Uh, one of the current challenges I see is that founders will often go through two, three rounds of hiring before they hit the right profile. And so I've taken all mm -hmm. that learning from the last couple of years and built it like a a framework for people to think about what skills they need and how to find those people. Um, and of course, if anyone has any questions, I'm super easy to get a hold of. You can find me on Medium, LinkedIn, Twitter, and just remains for me to say thank you, Mike. It's been an absolute pleasure to come back and chat with you again. My, 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 my pleasure. It was amazing. And of course, you are more than invited to, to come to share with the community uh, your new article it sounds uh, again straight on point and it seems that you are picking all the all the issues that you are uh, facing with your with your portfolio of, yeah of it's really more Mike here's all the mistakes I made in my executive career I'm going <laughs> to write it down so other people could maybe avoid some of them but it's a very generous offer I'd love to come back and speak to you again so this this was uh, Raf the Liwo venture partner at Crane back on the show. The previous episode is the number 173. If you want to, to get back and learn even more from Rav, um, we keep bringing you the best of the best to make your life easier, uh, scaling your company from 1 million to 100 million. See you soon and keep scaling.